Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Phil Orlando joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Phil Orlando, of course, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors. He brought his blood pressure medication with him because it's been that kind of that kind of week. Um, so, is this enough? Uh, it's a step in the right direction. I mean, we've seen this movie before. We we think we know how it ends. Uh, the beginning of October. Powell makes a rookie mistake saying we're a ways away from neutral in the market. That's when we started to roll over and die. And then he has that special... That's the technical term, roll over and die, but carry on. So then he has this the lunch at the uh, New York uh, on November 28th. Economic uh, Club. Right. I was at that lunch along with 1,200 of my closest friends. (laughs) And uh, he did the right thing. He explained to us in a little bit more detail exactly what he meant. Uh, we're very close to neutral, and, and as I walked out of that meeting, having read his transcript, having listened to his speech, in my mind, it was like, okay, we're going to get a hike in December, that's fine, we're going to get uh, one more hike later in 2019, I think we're going to skip March because of the March 1st deadline with the uh, China trade deal, and Brexit coming at the end of March. And debt ceiling debate. And, and, and Exactly. So so in my mind, I walked out of that lunch in November saying the Fed's got one, maybe two hikes left, and then we're done. And, and what did the market do? They rallied. Okay, so then we fast forward to the FOMC meeting, and everyone, myself at the top of this list, are expecting the Fed to come in, adjust the dot plots from what we saw at the September FOMC meeting, literally pull in their horns, and then during the Q&A, we were expecting Powell to sort of put some some flesh on those bones and explain, all right, we just got a hike. We're probably going to skip March for a couple of reasons. We've got one more hike next year, and then we're probably done. But that's not what he did. And, and that's why the market responded as violently to the downside as they did the last couple of days. So fast forward to this morning, uh, uh, John Williams is, is, is trotted out on Steve Leisman's show, and, and he's trying to reset what, what the chairman perhaps had intended to say with that answer. All right, well, let's let's roll it to, to the balance sheet. What do you think the Fed is looking to do as it relates to, you know, quantitative tightening as we roll into 2019? How do you think this is going to play out? So I think we've got a pretty good beat on this, that, that the, the Fed's balance sheet peaked out at about $4.5 trillion, up from a number below $1 trillion at the beginning. So they've got to pull that in and I think create dry powder. They, they need to prepare for the next recession which we don't think is next year. We still think it's 2021, 2022. And I think they need to pull that back to about the $3 trillion level. Right now, they're rolling it off at a pace of about $50 billion a month. So where we are right now, I think, is just a shade over $4 trillion. We're going to roll off $600 billion next year. That gets us to about three, four or so. And then if we rolled another $600 billion off in 2020, that takes us down to about two point eight. Somewhere in there, somewhere between two eight and three. Four. You know, let's call it three, three and a quarter, something like that. That's where I think the Fed stops. But when he got the question during the press conference, what are you doing with the balance sheet? He was like, oh, we're on autopilot. 
explain to us what that means. That well, hold on a second. I think he did more than that. I think it wasn't just that we're on autopilot. He seemed to dismiss the significance that quantitative tightening or letting the balance sheet roll off had on markets. That the reality is that the market is very concerned about that because we don't have a full sense. Are they going back to you know, a trillion dollars? Are they going to zero? Or, or are they going to some intermediate level at which everyone is comfortable? I think some more discussion around that point would have been more helpful to keep the market calm. Do you think Chairman Powell has lost the market? And by that, I mean, has he lost the confidence of market participants? And if so, what do we do? So I, I was on Maria Bartiromo's show Monday morning, and, and we were laughing over the rookie mistake that Ben Bernanke had made with her at a cocktail party talking about stuff he shouldn't have been talking about. But he learned from that mistake and improved. Uh, Janet Yellen made a mistake in her first year uh, telling everyone they should sell biotechnology stocks. That's and right. That obviously didn't work very well. So Powell had his rookie mistake in, in October. He should have learned from that. And, and you know, I, you know, sp speaking personally, am disappointed that we got the performance we got two days ago or three days ago. We, we should have gotten a better, tighter presentation. And I think that's why the Williams comment this morning was so important. Honestly, I could easily see somebody saying he gave us exactly what he should have given us. He was saying that the economy looks pretty strong. They're data dependent. They're convict. They, they have, you know, right now it appears that things are going well. They don't want to respond too much to markets and use, you know, the, mar the stock market as a barometer of whether or not they should hike. What did he say that was that different, number one? And number two, you know, honestly, at a certain point, aren't we just seeing price discovery for the first time in a decade? Lisa, you're a thousand percent correct. The, the, the context of the environment in which you're in is something that, that he's oblivious to. The, the S&P 500 is down 16% since the middle of September. Russell's down 23%. We're sort of in a free fall here. At a point in the seasonal cycle where the market should be going up, the economic data is pretty good, corporate earnings are pretty good, GDP growth is pretty good, yet we're in a free fall. That, that suggested that the market is skittish, it's nervous, it's concerned, and, and the Fed should have recognized that and I think Williams sort of made that comment uh, today. We 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 are looking at what the market's telling us. We're 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 cognizant of what the market's telling us, and and I think that the market perceived Wednesday that that Powell was sort of oblivious to what's going on right now. So real quickly, given all of that all of that uncertainty that maybe have been contributed by the Fed, what are you telling your clients in 2019? Well, we're telling them that that when we once we get work our way through all of this noise and nonsense there's going to be a massive buying opportunity and as we look at the fundamentals and ultimately that's what we're trying to do and over the course of the next year we think that corporate earnings in 2019 are going to be 170 dollars off of 160 dollars this year now that's only up five or six percent as opposed to 25 percent this year so will there be a deceleration in earnings growth yes Multiples, price earnings ratios over the last three or four months have contracted from 18 times earnings, we're trading a little over 14 times earnings right now. We've lost four multiple points. We believe that an 18 multiple is the appropriate multiple given the relatively benign nature of both interest rates and inflation. So if that's right, and we're slapping an 18 multiple on $170 in earnings, that's 3,100 on the S&P. We're sitting here at what, 2,400? 
I, I mean, that you're looking at, at you know, a 20% plus kind of return. But there's a lot of stuff that's got to happen in between now and declaring a bottom. And, and the things I'd look at are, are going to happen next spring and, or next March in terms of the Brexit deadline and are Trump and Xi going to be able to successfully navigate the, um, you know, the, the, the trade and tariff situation. Yeah, so just wait for those politicians to all come together and there say you kumbaya, oh, yeah, that, and then that'll be the time. Hey, Mer- Merry Christmas, Lisa. Merry Christmas to you, too. You. Love your Christmas tie, and, Phil and, Orlando. And what, what about these braces? Oh, suspenders that are so good. <laughs> Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist at Federated Investors, full on with the holiday gear. General Mattis, who has long been thought to be the ballast in the current White House administration, is set to retire. He released a a memo explaining why it was rather scathing, did not mention President Trump by name once. Joining us now here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios uh, is Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow uh, for Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a Senior Fellow at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University, formerly an FBI special agent on a joint terrorism task force, uh, served in the Army. He's joining uh, me and Paul Sweeney, who is filling in for Pim Fox. Clint, what do you make of General Mattis's resignation? It's frightening. I, I think uh, for just about anybody, Republican or Democrat, all the way up until now, there was some sort of comfort in knowing that General Mattis was there, a very experienced, level-headed executive, uh, can seem to communicate with President Trump and the rest of the uh, executive branch. He's good in terms of building relationships. He's got strong bipartisan support even on the Hill. And yet he leaves in a very precipitous way at a time where we've got a lot of foreign policy chaos. Whether you look across the board, Russia, China, uh, Iran, Syria with this rapid pullout, the, the creation of a space force, which kind of came out of nowhere. Just every day there seems to be a major foreign policy shift or move. Uh, yesterday was withdrawing soldiers from Afghanistan after we were just talking about, you know, staying there in the fight. And so it's hard for people in the executive branch, in the Defense Department, I think, to execute any sort of a plan because it changes on the whim based on a phone call or an impromptu meeting the president might have. And so I, I think that resignation letter uh, sends a shock to to the rest of the executive branch and, and to the legislative branches that we are in a, a very troublesome space right now. So, Clint, tell us, in your mind, how correlated was the uh, resignation of General Mattis to Trump's announcement about pulling out of Syria? Uh, and related to that is, is ISIS defeated? As the president claims, that would be news to a lot of people, I believe. Yeah, I'll start with the second one, which ISIS is not defeated. And President Trump has been so negative about President Obama's handling, where he said that essentially al-Qaeda had been defeated. That was going back into the last administration, which seemed very foolish as ISIS sort of rose out of the ashes of al-Qaeda out of nowhere and became such a more powerful threat. And we're seeing President Trump follow that same pattern. It's really crazy. Uh, There's a lot of detainees there. The Kurds actually have a lot of ISIS detainees. And this really goes to, I think, the Secretary Mattis' decision, which is pulling out of Syria precipitously like that may have been a good strategy over 
a year or two, but you want to have a plan in place to do that because otherwise you're releasing ISIS back onto the battlefield. You are empowering Iran and Russia, two of our you know, biggest adversaries at the moment, and we're not really getting anything in return. And by the way, we're also turning our back on allies that have gone and done the fighting for us. Part of the Syria strategy to counter ISIS was to have a limited U.S. footprint on the ground. We didn't want to send soldiers back into Iraq and Syria. We, we wanted to do it with a, just a series of special forces operations and air power, and we did. It took a little bit longer than everybody wanted, but other people did the fighting on the ground for us, the Iraqi military, the Kurds, uh, Syrian militias that we started to train, and we have just turned our backs on all of them. Uh, and I, I just really wonder that, you know, how we move forward, if anything ever pops up that we want to do, who would stand with us after we've just walked away from them? Well, and that's where I wanted to go with this, Clint. How permanent is the damage, in your mind, to the relationship that the U.S. has with its allies? Our allies don't understand what our foreign policy is, and it sounds like Sekdef Mattis doesn't understand it either. You know, in the letter, he sort of said, you deserve a, a secretary of defense that, you know, supports and works towards your views. But I don't think anyone really knows what that is. And so if you're an ally, you continue to look at the U.S. and say, what are you about? What are you pursuing? You know, what are our interests? Because it pivots back and forth. Let's take Afghanistan. We've seen President Trump take General McMaster's sort of strategy a year ago and implement it, you know, say we're going to do this. Now he's already backtracking from it. So what does that tell people on the ground there? Uh, look at ISIS in Syria. You know, we said we'll do one thing, then we do another. North Korea, uh, we're going to denuclearize. North Korea says we won't. You know, every one of these foreign policy matches that we've gone up against, uh, Vladimir Putin and Helsinki, we've come out the other side with no real understanding of what we've gained. What is America first, if that's our strategy? What do we want to achieve? What we've done is alienate literally all of our allies to where the strength of us as a country over the past five, six decades has been we've been able to leverage the entire world against whatever evil that might arise. I don't think we can do that going forward, and I don't think any ally would want to engage with us in a sustained way when they can't know if we're really going to be in it for the long haul or what we actually believe in. Clint, I just want to challenge you a little bit because a lot of people have been saying that the U.S. should not be fighting in the war in Syria and that the Afghanistan uh, mission has been badly uh, handled with deaths that really shouldn't be happening. So isn't isn't Trump right on that part? The part with Syria, which is fascinating, is the Obama administration took a very limited stance. They would not put U.S. soldiers into Syria, if you remember, for that exact same reason. We don't want to be there permanently trying to solve serious problems. President Trump's one of his first actions of his administration was to send U.S. soldiers and force straight into Syria and into that combat zone. He actually took the reverse of that. So if, if the strategy is to just deal with ISIS and also not get stuck in this quagmire, you have to do that in a very deliberate way. I think that's what the issue is with the Syria debate. People don't doubt that Iran and Russia were mostly going to get their way over the long term. But what do we want in that fight? Because right now, Russia and Iran and anyone else if they don't take care of that ISIS fight, we'll have what we had in 2016 and 2015, foreign fighters showing up around the world, terrorist attacks. And our strategy has always been fight them there rather than fight them here. This goes to Afghanistan as well. So to make that bridge, the Afghan war has needed to wind down for a long, long time. But the thing is, it's Hotel California. You you can check in, but you can never leave. That's the problem in these counterterrorism fights is 
Anytime we put ourselves in a footprint like that, we're going to have to be there or have a proxy or an ally or a surrogate, someone help us keep that counterterrorism security mission going forever. And we don't have that plan hammered out in Afghanistan right now. So, Clint, we do, don't do you think that, that raises the risk of anything happening on our soil? Yes, over time. I mean, it won't happen instantaneously. These networks, you know, they tend to arise they evolve and they show up in other places and in other ways. I mean, we saw an attack in Morocco uh, just this week where two women uh, were brutally murdered uh, by four ISIS supporters, which hasn't happened in quite some time. And so what will tend to happen is they will coalesce in a different way. I think another big challenge that we've got that we haven't thought through is state-sponsored terrorism using yeah. these proxies, using these former foreign fighters around the world against the United States or yeah. Western interests. Clint, that scares me to death right now. We're gonna, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. A lot to talk about. We'll have to have you back on. Happy holidays. Uh, a lot to think about this year. Clint Watts, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, also a former FBI special agent in the counterterrorism unit. One asset class that has been absolutely pummeled, Paul, has been Bitcoin, at least this year. And joining us now is somebody who is a believer in the blockchain technology, a believer in crypto assets, and has a lot of money invested in the securities. Daniel Masters, chairman of CoinShares Group, joining us now from London. Danny, thank you so much for being with us. I thought it was really interesting, a move that Switzerland made that seems to give some edification to the crypto asset world. Yes. Uh, hi. Um, nice to be with you again. It's been a very, very interesting few days uh, in crypto following what's been obviously a terrible year. Uh, now, Switzerland might not be the uh, most prominent nation from a U.S. perspective, but it is the 18th largest economy in the world, bigger than uh, Belgium and Argentina. Uh, the Swiss Federal Council um, just issued a framework entitled the Legal Framework for Distributed Ledger Technology and Blockchain. Um, and it's been issued by the Swiss Federal Council, uh, the most senior office in that Swiss na nation. Uh, this for Switzerland, in my opinion, is a new crypto constitution. Uh, it is a global precedent, and uh, it reminds me a lot of uh, the 2012 U.S. Jobs Act. So, Daniel, I guess when I read that um, about Switzerland, it, I, even though it is a relatively small econo economy, from a banking perspective, it's been a global leader forever. So I kind of viewed it maybe as a validation, if you will, of the blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies, you know, giving the, the, the leadership position that Switzerland's kind of always had in, in financial services. You're correct. They are indeed uh, and have been for many uh, decades leaders uh, in financial services. Uh, that makes this report that much more credible. Um, the report itself is very substantial, it covers 162 pages, uh, over 800 legal cross-references. And what really drew our attention to it was that um, on my uh, professional network, uh, this was viewed by over 375,000 people. Uh, that happened to correspond um, with a 25% rally uh, in crypto, uh, measured, for example, in Bitcoin between like $3,200 and $4,000. So uh, I think this is a meaningful development. Um, yeah. 
So, Danny, um, your CoinShares uh, has a combined $1 billion of assets uh, under management focused on cryptocurrencies and their crypto assets. And I'm just wondering, what are you expecting next year? I mean, are we going to be talking more about Bitcoin as a viable long-term asset class uh, next year? And will it rally or is it going to be another difficult period for, for it? Well, you know, I think this this report is actually uh, possibly a catalyst for some interesting developments. In 2017 crypto values were driven by non-institutional investors. Uh, this current year-end rally we're seeing in 2018, uh, per our inflows and per information from our peers, is institutionally driven. Uh, this is supported by the Swiss government stance because it's the sort of encouragement that institutional investment committees can buy into. Uh, in terms of the, the likely shape of the rally uh, that we may see next year, I think it will be much narrower than we saw in the past. Uh, the proliferation of tokens, uh, many of which will fail, um, but from uh, that wreckage, similar to what happened after the uh, NASDAQ crash in 2001, I think we're going to see a narrow band of some protocol coins and some asset coins uh, that are going to do quite well. Daniel, what else would the crypto market broadly defined like to see to, I guess, further validate the technology and the potential use cases? Um, you know, Switzerland may be one of those uh, mileposts. Mm -hmm. What else do you think the market is really looking for to provide some support uh, for this technology, sure. this currency? Yeah, you're right. I, I think that the uh, the evolutionary Big Bang that we saw in crypto over the last few years has been largely aspirational. Uh, the technology companies that we're directly involved with are developing really interesting technology. It has been slow to come to the market, and that's what the market needs to see. Now, the headwinds that these kind of technology companies actually face is being addressed by some of these Swiss government measures. So just quickly, money laundering and terrorist financing is always a concern. Uh, the Swiss have taken this into account, recognized its importance, and said in their studies and detection so far, it's not been a big issue. So they're going to keep a watching eye, but allow a more fluid environment. Banking has been a headwind for these companies. Uh, this document actually uh, talks about Switzerland's position to get the Swiss Bankers Association to buy into this initiative. Uh, and cleverly, uh, the way that the Swiss are looking at securities and physical assets, which are usually represented in a in a uh, dematerialized form like trading rights for securities or depository seats for commodities. Yeah. And they're looking at those instruments to be digitized. Thank you so much for being with us. Danny Masters, chairman of, chairman of CoinShares Group in London. Right now, we are going to turn our focus to healthcare. We've seen uh, healthcare shares getting beaten up pretty badly as a result of this Texas judge basically overturning Obamacare. Joining us now to talk about that and whatever else is facing the healthcare industry heading into 2019, Susan DeVore, Chief Executive Officer of Premier, based in Charlotte, but here with us today in our 1130 studio. So, Susan, what did you make of this court ruling and how much does it make your life more difficult? You know, I think the court ruling is a short-term headline. It'll go through the process. There have been multiple attempts to repeal, replace, or do something with Ob Obamacare. The truth is you got 17 million people who have access now, and I think the regulators are going to continue to implement 
initiatives that really try to solve the core problems, which are the cost of healthcare, the quality and the outcomes of healthcare. And so I think, I think this will just be a background theme while the rest of the regulators move forward. And what do you expect? And what do you expect the rest of those regulators to do? What's the, I guess, the theme for 2019 in terms from a regulatory perspective? Because I, when I think about healthcare, it, it always starts and ends with the regulatory framework. Yes, there are a couple of themes. The first one is they want to move all hospitals and doctors to being paid based on a bonus or penalty system, based on their outcomes, based on their costs, based on their complication rates. That will continue in full force. Uh, I think they're also very focused on drug pricing. There are several initiatives that are underway around redesigning uh, the, the way drug pricing happens. Um, I actually think not only in the public sector, but the private sector is very active. Employers are getting a lot more engaged in going directly to provider networks like a premier where you have a large national footprint of providers and they're not satisfied with the value that insurance companies have been able to bring in truly changing the outcomes in healthcare. How do you lower the costs and improve outcomes? What do you do? So it's complicated, right? We all know it's complicated now. Uh, In healthcare, you have to have data. You have to have transparency. You have to have aggregation ability. So what Premier does is actually aggregate their buying power, aggregate the data, find the root cause problems, measure it transparently, report it. And I think the federal government, state government, and insurance companies need to pay based on that performance. One thing that I find interesting is we're hearing more about artificial intelligence and how it can be used in healthcare. And I'm wondering when you talk about data, are you using either artificial intelligence programs to try to understand and predict outcomes better or move it forward? And also, are you are you seeing any of the providers using things like chips that can help people measure themselves and things like that? Yeah, so absolutely. And we think it's a theme that will continue into 2019, all the disruption around technology. The challenge is, Everybody now has lots of big data. The challenge is how do you turn that big data into small data so that when you're at the doctor and that doctor is interacting with you, he can be or she can be alerted to change the decisions that are being made based on quality, based on safety, based on a new clinical trial. We, Premier, have just acquired a company called Stanson Health that helps physicians in real time, in the moment, change the way care is being delivered. And that's what we all have to get to. How about at the at the hospital um, experience? What are some of the trends there that can improve that, lower the cost, make it more efficient? Because um, it seems like um, you know the the hospital experience is one that that needs to change as well. Yeah. So the hospital experience and the doctor experience, I think, both need to change. One, they need data at their fingertips as opposed to these systems that couldn't be connected. You know, it's kind of like somebody has an Xbox, somebody has a PlayStation, they can't play the same game because they're not on the same system. So with cloud-based computing and all the technology and artificial intelligence, you have much more ability to get that data to the patient, to the doctor, to the hospital to improve what they're doing in real time. What's for the, the for-profit hospitals? How what are the business trends been for them over the last several years, and how do you expect that to play out over the next couple of years? You know, the for-profit hospitals compete in many of the same markets as not-for-profit hospitals. They all have the same problems, right. which is costs are growing too fast. They have they have bad debt charity care. Maybe the for-profits have some less of that than the not-for-profits. They're trying to integrate the data. They're trying to adjust to these risk-based payment models. Uh, they're trying to improve quality and safety. A lot of the same issues, actually. 
But if we could really implement some of what you're talking about, these sort of monitoring devices and uh, computer programs that could aggregate and have predictive power, how many hospitals would go away? I mean, how many, how many of the current, how much of the current infrastructure that we have for healthcare would be rendered ins- obsolete? So there are some estimates that there is 30% waste still in the healthcare system, meaning overuse, duplication, all of that. You complicate that by all these other technologies and capabilities, right? And and then you complicate it by the demographics of the population because 12,000 people are entering Medicare every single day. We're living with chronic conditions longer. Healthcare systems aren't hospitals anymore by themselves. They're actually integrated systems of doctor's offices and surgery centers and retail pharmacies and hospitals and nursing homes. And I don't think the need for that system goes away. I actually think as we live longer with chronic conditions, it, it increases. I think that the high cost settings, we may need fewer of those. And we may need to spend a lot more time and money preventing and dealing with uh, chronic conditions in different ways. Susan DeVore, thank you so much for being with us. Happy holidays to you. Thank you. You too. Susan DeVore uh, is Chief Executive of Premier, coming to us uh, here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.